Hello, this is Gary Miller, president of the University of Akron. We're honored to have you listen to our podcast series, Diverse Engineering, which is made possible thanks to the generous support of our gold sponsors, GPD Group and Continental Contatech. The University of Akron and our community partners are committed to the success of students from around the world and in our own backyard. We're especially proud of the contributions and successes that have resulted from the hard work, determination, and dedication of our students of color. Please enjoy our podcast. Welcome to Diverse Engineering, a podcast celebrating the stories, voices, contributions, and innovations of minorities to their fields of engineering. What does CAD, computer automated design, microphones, video games, color TV, wireless phones, artificial hearts, stents, and dishwashers all have in common? You guessed it. All were inventions or significantly improved inventions by historically excluded engineers. My name is Ebony Bond. I am a mechanical engineering graduate from the notable University of Akron, and I will be your host for this podcast. This season honors minority professors and researchers in engineering here at the university. You can expect to hear their stories about navigating their education and careers and hear about their research and the real world impact that they are making through their research. For more information about our podcast and to stream past episodes, visit uacron.edu forward slash diverse engineering. This episode is titled Many Rivers Cross and features Dr. Ruel McKenzie. Here's what you should know about Dr. McKenzie. Dr. McKenzie is an assistant professor in the School of Polymer Science and Polymer Engineering at the University of Akron. He was previously a National Research Council postdoctoral fellow at the Air Force Research Laboratory at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and a postdoctoral researcher at the Foundation for Research and Technology ELLA in the Institute for Electronic Structure and Laser. Dr. McKenzie's research focus is towards understanding the dynamics of soft matter systems and enabling the development of complex structures and multifunctional materials for sustainable and resilient applications. He was born and raised in Kingston, Jamaica, and is a graduate from NYU Tannen School of Engineering and Columbia University, obtaining all of his degrees in chemical engineering from his bachelor's to his Ph.D. We look forward to sharing your story and to hearing your impact and your experience and, and explorations as a researcher. Um, definitely want to thank you for taking the time out today to speak with us. How do you feel about being here? Uh, I really appreciate the invitation. Um, I feel really honored. Um, but then uh, I'm like, oh, geez, I'm just a junior faculty. I, I haven't accom accomplished that much yet. <laughs> oh, just that word, just. Well, yeah. we're glad that you're here. Yeah. Um, so I want to kick off my first question. You, you're from... Kingston, Jamaica. Yes. What was it like growing up there and what was the culture and then like your experience with education? Ah, um, so before I dive into it, is it okay if I do, I, I, I do circular discussions a lot. So I, okay. I make a big circle before I get back to my point. Okay. Um, so I, I don't do podcasts often. <laughs> um, and I, I'm not sure if this will get to the ears I, I want it to get to, but I just want to say first hi to my wonderful wife and and kids. Um, without you, none of this would be possible. Um, I'm going to talk Jamaican for a sec, just okay. in case this gets to their ears. Okay. Um, I want to big up all Yadi from Ronsa, Ronsa, Ronsa and Ronsa. Um, you know, I'm here. Uh, love you all. Um, Sprat family up. 
Okay. Um, <laughs> so education in Jamaica. Um, so Jamaica uh, is a former colony of uh, the British Empire. Uh, so our educational system is actually really robust. It's um, a British-based education system. And I was exposed to a lot early in life um, in, in terms of the arts, the sciences, the humanities. Uh, Jamaica, we're very much into culture and, and, and the performative aspects of culture and the philosophy behind everything. If you ever, so there's a saying that goes, if you ever meet a Jamaican, uh, be careful because they can philosophize about anything. Um, <laughs> meet a Jamaican, they will tell you everything about the Bible. So, you know, in terms of education, um, I, I would say I've got an overall education by just being from my culture. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I can talk about, well, I hope I can talk about almost <laughs> anything, um, but really I like to hear about everything and learn about the world. Um, the schools that I went to, uh, you know, thanks to my mom, um, you know, some of the best schools on the island of Jamaica. So I'm a proud alumni of uh, the Wilmers Prep School. So if anyone also listening knows that school, um, it's a it's a prep school that goes all the way to high school. I just went there for um, elementary school. Sorry, I, I have to remember where, where I'm speaking. <laughs> um, and then I went to a high school called Campion College, um, which historically has been known as one of the best in the Caribbean. Um, and there, you know, they, 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 they were very rigorous, um, not much handholding, but a lot of guidance and mentorship on just us recognizing that being in a school like this, being privileged to be in a school like this, it's almost certain that you will become a leader in whatever you choose to do. Oh, wow. Um, so I, so I'm very proud of being an alumni of Campion College, but also proud of just a lot of the accomplishments that I've seen from past alumni um, mm -hmm. from that school as well. It seems like you had a pretty rigorous education and probably received some of the best education that you could coming from the Caribbean. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it was very different um, because, you know, coming from the Caribbean, ed education is kind of seen like a tool. It's seen as a tool for survival or as a tool for getting out. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and hopefully you know what I mean by getting out. Right. Um, you know, Jamaica is, is a developing nation, still relatively poor. There's poverty anywhere. So mm -hmm. the philosophy is always the more education you can get, the better chances you have of getting to where, where your dreams um, are trying to take you. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, you know, also growing up in a, uh, what I call a first generation removed from the inner city family, um, I also got what I called street education, right? Mm -hmm. So survival um, is at its uh, ultimate when it comes to just education for the average Jamaican, right? Mm -hmm. um, just mm -hmm. learning to get by, learning to get move forward, learning to get ahead. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I don't think I picked up, like my mom would always fear. She was like, I mean, you just don't have any street smarts. I'm like, I don't. <laughs> She's like, no, I worry about you. No, that's okay. <laughs> actually, it's funny you say that because um, if, if, you know, if and when this podcast gets to my family, they would they'd probably start laughing and like, you know, of everyone in this family, you are the least streetwise out of all of us. <laughs> I still grew up, you know, yeah. like I guess what they call like an urban or underserved area, but I'm like, well, I got bookstores, I guess that'll get me through life. So, yeah, that, that's yeah. interesting. Probably relate on. on yeah, that yeah. They always said, yeah, just stick to the books. Stick yeah, to the books. You're, you're, you're good at that. Stick to that. 
So you said like, you know, in, in speaking to the books, like people like you're prepared to be a leader in, you know, whatever you do, leaving the education system that you did. Did you discover there that you wanted to go into chemical engineering or dabble in chemistry or how did that come about? Um, oh, geez, man, I have way too many funny stories or <laughs> it might it might it might be funny. It might not be funny. Um, I actually when I chose to become a chemical engineer, I had no idea that chemical engineering even existed. Mm. So in high school in Jamaica, at least when I was in high school in Jamaica, um, the way it's set up is that for the first Three years of high school, you're you're more or less a generalist, so you do all the subjects that they offer. Um, and then after year three, you have to kind of down select what you want to do. Um, so essentially, picking what you want to do with your life. Um, so like for the next two to three or four years, this is these are the classes that you're taking. And heaven forbid you want to change your mind. I, I right. have no idea what happens if you want to change your mind. <laughs> um, so I, I remember my mom having this conversation with me. She was like, "Well, what do you want to do with your life?" I was like, um, I like chemistry, but I don't want to be a chemist, or at least I don't think I have the patience to be a chemist, but I really love chemistry. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I want to be an engineer, but I don't know much about engineering. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to assume that there's something called chemical engineering, and that is what I want to do. I want, oh, wow. to, I want to be able to engineer all these wonderful chemicals that I like to play with and mm -hmm. figure out you know, if there is such a thing. Mm -hmm. um, luckily, there was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, it was a good assumption, but I, I never really knew that there was chemical engineering until it time to came to, you know, decide, okay, are we going to go to college? Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, look, chemical engineering. There it is. Th mm -hmm. that's, what I'll, that's what I'll do. So you came to the U.S., you know, for higher education. What was that like? Were there any, like, surprises or, you know, culture shocks? Um, not much, primarily because half of my family is already situated in America. Um, so I decided to, well, uh, I, I was kind of forced to go to <laughs> New York uh, because that's where my family is. Um, it, it was one of the cheaper options available, right? Um, if you know much about the, the cost of an undergraduate education, um, having having any any opportunities to reduce that cost helps. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I lived with family, got to know my extended family a lot better, mm -hmm. um, got more entrenched into American culture. Um, so I, I knew a lot about the what, what I would call the, the immigrant community in America when I visited here. But I, I wasn't really exposed to what I call the general average American community. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I didn't really start getting what I call culture shocks until I was actually in grad school. I, I feel I was kind of insulated from a lot of mm. the broader cultural um, aspects of America until I was more or less on my own mm -hmm. in graduate school. Oh, wow. Hmm. Did, was there anything that shocked you when you went to graduate school about culture? Oh, man. <laughs> a lot of things. A lot of things. Um so I remember once I had a friend visit me um, and, you know, sometimes you don't think about certain things un until somebody kind of brings it to your attention. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember, so she was from an interracial family. So she was always very acutely aware of racial disparities everywhere mm -hmm. and, you know, where, where people either are or aren't mixing. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember when she visited me, she was like, you know, all I keep seeing around here are black people. Where are all the white people? And I was like... <laughs> now, now that you mention, now that you mention it, 
That is a good question. Um, and then I get into grad school um, at Columbia. Um, so this entire time I've been going to school in Brooklyn, right? So mm-hmm. really ethnically diverse um, in downtown Brooklyn. Um, if you know much about Brooklyn, I'll, I'll just give a quick description. So there's a street called Flatbush Avenue that goes from one side of Brooklyn all the way downtown. And it's just ethnic diversity, right? So you start from Uh, I would say uh, Slavic immigrants and then you work your way through Caribbean immigrants and African immigrants. And by the time you get to downtown, you've went through all like the Jewish communities. Right. Mm-hmm. And I always said, well, you know, everyone has their little pockets. And then she said, well, you know, why, why, why don't people mix around? I was like, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. So then I, I ended up going to grad school and then my friend visited me again. <laughs> um, and then she was like, wait, it's all white people now. Where, <laughs> where, where did all the black people go? And I was like, <laughs> It's interesting you say that. What's going on here? Um, you know, like they always say that America is like a, a, a melting pot. And I was like, well, it's more like a pelting pot, right? They are together, but they're not really mixing. Mm-hmm. Um, more like a salad or something. Yeah. So, so, you know, so then I started to have what I call these culture conversations where a, a, lot, a lot of things started to seem really foreign. And I'm like, well, you know you're American and you're American. Why don't you guys really know about what's going on in each other's backyard? I, I, I don't know what's going on. Um, and I started to get more immersed in the education system. I was like, Oh, there's a, there's a lot of things that aren't being shared. Um, so, mm-hmm. and then, you know, because I, I came from Jamaica and, um, you know, not to over, over hype my, my education system, but we learned everything. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so then I used to get into conversations where I'd be like, okay, let me tell you about what <laughs> I learned about your country, um, and, and, and how things are. So, so we can start to bridge this divide. So, you know, I, I realized I, I started to take on this educator role in a way in, 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 in bridging cultures and to get everyone to realize that, you know, We're, we're all in the same place and working towards the same goals. It, it's kind of silly that we don't know about each other and our respective struggles and why we're here. Um, mm-hmm. So no, that, that was a shock, but um, I would say my, my bigger shock um, and not to, to, to be tongue in cheek was, was just the weather. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I came from a, essentially a, a single, uh, single weather system where it's just hot all the time. Uh-huh. Right. So, so I was very, excited and eager to experience seasonal changes. Um, I, I remember very vividly fall, my first fall. Mm-hmm. I very vividly remember my first snow. Of course. <laughs> um, and I very vividly remember my first spring because that's when I learned I have crazy spring allergies. Uh... Um, so, you know, even though the weather isn't the best these days, uh, I'm like, oh, well, it's holding, it's holding spring back a bit. So, you know, right. I, I don't have to worry about taking my allergy meds or anything or coming in with my eyes puffy and my, you know, my nose really watery. Wondering. Like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned like your friend came to visit you at NYU 10 and, and then they came to visit you at Columbia, but then you went back to NYU 10 and to get mm-hmm. your PhD. Yeah. What made you like go back to the university? I think, I don't know if that's like typical, but I've never seen someone like go somewhere else and then come back to their original school. Ah, uh, okay. Um, so this is where I kind of feel like, Uh, Morpheus from the Matrix. Um, you okay. know, I'm, I'm going to hold out a red pill and a green pill, and I'm going to say, you know, if you if, I, if you take, I, well, I forget which one you have to take, but you know, if you take the red pill, uh, you know, you you wake up and you know this is all a dream. If you take the green pill, then you know you're going to go way down the rabbit hole. Um, I will go down the rabbit hole slightly um, mm-hmm. and, and see where it takes us. Um, so, yes, that is correct. So people don't often 
leave and go back to where they came from, right? Um, so when I got into grad school, um, so remember, I, I'm the kid who had no idea what chemical engineering was and said, I want to be a chemical engineer. Um, I started learning about chemical engineering and I thought this is the most amazing thing. Like, I, 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 like, like, yes, I knew, I knew this is what I wanted to do. Um, and as I, as I grew into becoming a senior, I started to learn about how chemical engineering was growing as a discipline and how essentially it's kind of branching into other areas of sciences. So this is when chemical engineering was branching heavily into biosciences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was interested, I wanted to learn more, but I, you know, but I wasn't, again, I, I, I wasn't sure what I was getting myself into. So in grad school, um, the, at least the way it goes at Columbia, um, your first semester, you kind of get a flavor of what everyone's doing. So all the faculty, they give presentations, you, you know, you talk with the faculty and the students to get a sense of what they're doing, what their work areas are. Mm-hmm. And I was just very fascinated by um, uh, protein engineering. Okay. I thought this was the most amazing thing. Um, I said, I've never done biology a day in my life, mm-hmm. but I want to learn this. This fascinates me. Um, and it probably goes against the grain of uh, what, what people normally pursue in graduate school, right? You pursue what you know and you kind of, you know, you, you, you go from there. Mm-hmm. But I kind of viewed graduate school differently. I, I said, well, you know... I, I'm going to look at graduate school as an opportunity to expand my expertise, uh, build my repertoire uh, of skill sets. So I'm going to completely invest in this protein engineering thing. Um, but what I then started learning um, was about the, uh, and I'm not going to try to sound controversial, but I, I started to learn about the the political sides of being a graduate student um, in academia um, and also the, the cultural things that that doesn't necessarily make you feel safe and welcomed and nurtured as a student, especially if you've openly admitted that I've never done this before, but I want to invest myself in it. Right. Um, you know, depending on who you're talking to, they may they may view that as well this guy isn't cut out for this. So we're going to treat him as if he's not cut out for this right. or we are not going to nurture him. Yeah. So with zero background, I would say I feared really well. I even helped out a postdoc to recognize that this thing that he thought was amazing was just him selecting for the wrong thing. So, so I did, so I did something called uh, directed evolution where we essentially trained or coached um, microorganisms to be able to pick something out of a, of a haystack. Right, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, and I was, um, so my thesis was on um, selecting for uh, what we call ordinance related compounds or bomb residue, right? This so is your thesis at Columbia. Okay. Yeah, so, okay. so I was actually in the PhD program at Columbia. Okay. Um, but I, after a while, I would recognize that, you know, when certain people were struggling, they would get nurtured and they would have their hands held and they would be told, it's okay. You know, you can, you know, you can pick yourself up and get back at it tomorrow. And then when other people were struggling, it was like, uh, Oh, why are you struggling? It mm-hmm. should, it should be easy. You should be able to do this. Why can't you do this? Mm-hmm. Um, and after a while I, I you know, I, I, I recognize that having a lot of support, at least as a graduate student, um, not just academic support, but emotional and psychological and even cultural support very necessary um, just mm-hmm. to sustain a healthy outlook on, mm-hmm. on your 
career trajectory. Mm-hmm. I know you're so. Yeah, and I and I got and I got to a point where I was like, you know, I I, I don't feel like it's working anymore. Um, mm-hmm. As much as I have invested and I really like this, um, I'm you know, and I just said, you know, I I think it's best if I if I go. Mm-hmm. Um, but luckily, um, uh, fortuitously, um, at the time, um, my my girlfriend, who is now my wife. Um, because at the time I decided, well, you know, I'm just done with this grad school thing. I, you know, I, I, I'm not getting a good flavor off this. I don't like it anymore. And for me, uh, at least with my personality, I invest heavily in things. And the moment I don't feel like I'm investing myself anymore is the moment I just want to keep, you know, move on to something else. Right. Um, but my wife was, at least my girlfriend at the time, um, was very heartbroken at me saying, I want to be done with this. I want to leave. I just want to go back home. I want to be back on the beach in the, in the, in the safety of my, of my tiny island. Um, and I remember her saying, well, what about me? What about us? Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, you're, <laughs> you are correct. I can't just leave. Yeah. Um, so I said, well, you know, the school that I graduated from um, is now NYU. Um, there's a lot of investments now in uh, enhancing the infrastructure. Um, maybe I can go back and talk to some of my old professors and see if I can just transfer here. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily I was able to. Um, so it was actually a really smooth transition, um, way smoother than I thought it would. Um, so I left Columbia December 2018 and January 2019. I was a student at NYU. Oh, that's, yeah. that's good. And I think, thank you for sharing that yeah. story. Um, hopefully if somebody hearing that will find comfort in knowing that they can choose themselves if they feel like they're in an environment where they aren't being nurtured or supported or encouraged that they can get out of there um, because it's not worth it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, It's actually something I, you know, being a, I guess a faculty advisor, uh, sometimes I worry about, okay, how much information is too much information to give to a student, especially if I see that they're struggling. Um, And sometimes I'm like, well, if I share my experiences, I, I don't want them to feel as if I'm encouraging them to leave, but I, I always say, you know, don't feel like you're alone mm-hmm. um, when it comes to making a decision, right? Um, there, there's a support structure here that's meant for you. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't feel like you can come and talk to me as your advisor, there's lots of other people you can still talk to, right? Um, mm-hmm. There's the, the the dean, there's other faculty, there's um, even resources here just for talking to people right. um, to kind of think through things. Um, and, you know, when it comes to doing things like a PhD, um, I'm kind of old school. So I always say, you know, it doesn't matter where you get your PhD from. It's really what you studied mm-hmm. um, and, and whether or not people find it interesting. So, you know, find something that interests you and that you're ready to invest yourself in and you'll be fine irrespective of where you are. Mm-hmm. So earlier you mentioned you found yourself kind of being an educator when it came to, you know, telling people about the differences in culture or people's experiences, even here in America. How did you find out that you wanted to be a professor? Oh, how did I find out? Um, I, maybe I, I still didn't find out yet, to be, <laughs> to be honest. Um, what, what happened was that when I got back to NYU, uh, I started to TA classes. Uh, so I TA'd the chemical engineering lab, mm-hmm. which by far has always been still is my favorite class. Like I love teaching lab classes um, because they're very practical. They're very hands-on. Um, and it, it's that moment where the students, like they wake up and they're like, this is what all that math and theory goes into. I get it now. 
Um, so that was like my bread and butter. Um, so I TA'd that class for almost my entire graduate career. Mm-hmm. Um, and after a while, um, the students started saying things like, have you ever thought about being a professor? You might be okay at this, you know? Mm-hmm. You sure you didn't? You sure you don't want to go into this? <laughs> um, like even when I was at Columbia, when I TA'd, um, I would get that comment. I was like, um, no, I, I want to I wanna be an engineer and work for a company or start a company and build things. I want to build uh, distillation columns and do engineering. Like, we well, don't know what a distillation column is. That's fine. <laughs> we, yeah, we don't have to know what a distillation column is, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's it's what we call a, a processing unit, right? So um, distillation columns. Uh, I'll just give up cultural reference, right? They're they're used a lot for making alcohol, okay, right? um, and things okay. like that. But it's okay. really just for separating things. Okay. But what what I what I recognized was was that it was primarily the minority students that were coming to me and saying these things. They felt comfortable approaching me and getting help because they're like, well, you know, you, you, you won't, you know, I, I understand, I understand your, your language mm-hmm. um, is probably the best way of saying it. You know, I, I, I understand you and I feel like you understand me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel a lot more comfortable approaching you with, with, with my questions um, mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, sometimes with students, they feel like, uh, I guess because of the power dynamics between faculty and students, um, sometimes they feel as if their questions aren't justified. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll be like, no, you know, you know, questions are questions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the the worst the worst question is no questions, mm-hmm. right? So if you have a question, ask it, right? There's no such thing as a bad question. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time I got to graduate, um, again, this is maybe just weird twist of fate. Um, so my girlfriend, who is now my wife, um, was was pregnant with our second child, mm-hmm. um, and we were in no position to even want to think about leaving New York. Um, mm-hmm. No position at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know there was a, a job opening um, in my department uh, for for an adjunct, and and I, and I remember a student was like. You should apply for this. <laughs> I was like, I was like, are you kidding me, man? Uh, sure, I'll I'll give it a whirl. I've been doing this. I've been doing this for a few years now. I I I can get the hang of this. Why not? Um, and I thought, well, if I'm going, if I'm only going to end up becoming the professor for this class that I'm already the TA for the the past few years, transitioning should be fine. I should right. be able to teach this class just fine. So I applied for the job. Um, I spoke with the my department head, who was also one of my research faculty advisors, um, and he said, "You know, adjuncts don't really get paid much." Um, and he knew of my family situation and life situation, so he said, "I'm going to give you another class to teach, so you make enough money mm-hmm. to make ends meet." I was like, "Oh, oh God bless. Thank, oh, mm-hmm. thank you so much." <laughs> but what I quickly realized was that oh, teaching is a beast. Like yeah. be, being a being like. Like teachers don't get as much credit as they should. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always feel bad that, you know, when I see teachers picketing for pay and I'm like, you know, you, you deserve, yep. you deserve way more, you deserve yep. way more. Um, so me and my, I guess my, my naive arrogance, I said, well, you know, I, I, you know, I did this class before, you know, all these classes that I'm assigned to teach, I, I, you know, I was a student, it shouldn't be that bad to teach. I, mm-hmm. and I was a very diligent student. So I had like my notes well, well written. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to teach from my notes. Right. Cause that's what people do. <laughs> um, so I had two classes. So I had the lab class and the other class was, um, kinetics, um, Kinetics and reactor design. Another one of my favorite classes. Love that class. 
I was like, okay, good. It's stuff that I like, right? It's not like they gave me something where I had to like re relearn everything. Mm -hmm. um, so I said, all right, I'll dust off my notes. Um, so the lab class was fine. Um, it was awkward at first because the students who I was first their TA had to now figure out, well, do I keep calling him Ruel or do I have to call him Dr. McKenzie now? Yeah. Do I say professor or like, how do I yeah. approach you now? So, so that was the only awkward thing I had to deal with in that class. And it was very easy managing them. Mm -hmm. But then in my kinetics class, it was, oh man, it was, it was incredibly challenging. Um, it was a, a very large class, probably the largest class, one of the largest classes I've taught. It was about 70 students mm -hmm. and it wasn't the, uh, what do you call that? The auditorium style of class. Everyone was flat. Mm -hmm. So I could only more or less see the front row. Mm -hmm. So I would never know if anyone is, was really connected to what I was doing. And I recognized that, oh, I'm. I'm just writing from my notebook because that's how I remember I, I was taught. There was just a guy with his notebook writing things and everyone was supposed to write it down and follow. Mm -hmm. And I quickly realized that students were not engaged. <laughs> they were not engaged. Um, they were doing really well in homeworks. Um, they were doing really well in homeworks. And I was like, okay, they're, they're doing awesome. Um, but then I quickly learned that to understand how engaged your students are, you don't, you don't use the homeworks as your metric. Mm -hmm. um, you actually use the quizzes and the exams and they did not do well. Mm -hmm. um, and I recognized at that moment when they didn't do well, all of a sudden, all the eyes, it's almost as if they rolled in, in the back of everyone's heads. Everyone just completely unplugged from the class. I was mm -hmm. like, oh, geez. How do I get them back? How do I get them back? This is incredibly stressful. Yeah. But I got through it. I got through it. Um, at least I think what was impressive, I'm not sure if that's the correct word, um, was that I actually didn't formally graduate yet. Um, mm -hmm. So I transitioned to being an adjunct. Um, I technically graduated in January, but I didn't get my degree until May. So when I went to get my degree or, and get hooded, um, I was actually sitting with faculty <laughs> because, because um, mm. the PhD students had their, their own row. Um, and I remember a faculty member looked at me and she was like, wait, I thought you taught here. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, yes, I, 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 I kind of, I kind of do teach here. Um, but I also just got my degree. And she was mm -hmm. like, oh, that's awesome. And she was like, how, how was it? Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, it was really tough. Mm -hmm. Like it was like, it was not as as straightforward as I thought it would be. Yeah, um, and, she was, and yeah, she was like, don't worry. Um, probably the most encouraging faculty mentorship I got. She was like, don't worry. It normally takes about seven years to perfect this craft. I was like, oh. <laughs> like I felt so relieved because yeah. I was like, oh man, I, I felt like I crashed and burned this semester. And she was like, no, no, the first year is usually the, the hardest because, you know, there's no formal training for this, mm -hmm. right? And, 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 you know, you have to kind of adapt with the mindset of the students, right? So if you grew up with someone writing on a board from a textbook, don't assume that that is how the new learners uh, approach learning. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, let me write all this down. This is, <laughs> this is, these are some golden nuggets I should, I should take forward with me. But I, I, I was... I, I liked that little flavor that I got when I, when I was an adjunct. I was like, okay, it takes a while to learn how to do this. Good. Um, and I, and I did not mind doing it. Um, mm -hmm. I actually felt very rewarded doing it. Um, mm -hmm. and seeing how the students progressed and seeing that's what I call that eye popping moments when things start connecting. Mm -hmm. Um, those are the little jewels that I really like from teaching. 
Um, but then, you know, when it came to things like note prep, grading, advising, and all the other intangibles that educators don't get compensated for, mm-hmm. it's like, oh man, like I remember grading my first homework. Um, imagine grading 70 homeworks. Mm-hmm. I was like, how do, I was like, how do teachers do this with a smile on their face and not come in <laughs> miserable the next day? Because, you know, you're, you know, because you're doing this off hours, mm-hmm. right? And you're not getting recognized for it. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. geez, this is, this is not fair. Mm-hmm. Um, so long story short, that's, that's kind of how I got into being an educator. It wasn't that I thought it was something I should do. It was something more I was People encouraged do. to, to pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I actually thank them for that. Um, I actually stay in, in relatively relative contact with some of those students and a lot of them were like, see, you knew you were going to be, be a faculty member, but uh, it's, 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 it's very rewarding being an educator. Um, and, and I'm, and I know for the rest of my life, I'm going to be one of those people that say, no, we need to pay teachers more. They, yep. they need to be, we need to pay them as much as doctors, like we, if not more, more. Um, because they're, they're the ones who set the foundation and you can't, you can't treat people who foundation of a nation, literally yeah. like it's, uh, yeah. it comes with so much responsibility. Yeah. Um, I definitely agree. I think my dream job was actually to be a teacher. I was heavily influenced by Miss Honey off of Matilda. Ah. And um, so you mentioned, you know, the classes that you taught while you were, you know, an adjunct professor at NYU Tandon. Mm-hmm. What class do you teach now? Ah, um, so I'm actively, I only teach one class this semester. Okay. Um, let me just double check. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm teaching a class in the Williams, the Williams Honors College called Polymers and the Environment. Okay. Uh, it's an interdisciplinary course, essentially to give a broad strokes introduction to anyone who's interested um, on just some of the issues plaguing the polymers industry right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, more environmental related issues mm-hmm. um, and just some of the approaches that we're taking to understanding these challenges, but also mitigating these challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, this type of class can only work in an interdisciplinary setting, mm-hmm. uh, primarily because um, what we what we tend to focus on is that, uh, A, this problem goes beyond plastics, but um, when it comes to things like waste management and um, responsible and ethical use of materials, it goes beyond what the scientist is capable of, right? Um, right. The scientist is only responsible for, you know, engineering, synthesis, and design, right? Um, everything else comes down to the economics that are involved, the societal and cultural um, framework that that essentially engenders these types of materials. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just to understand concepts like uh, life cycle analysis, right? So, mm-hmm. so that's like a, a, a nice buzzwordy term that people use now and just trying to understand um, the life of things in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how long can things last? Um, what are we doing to ensure that we, what we call close the loop on this linear economic and industrial model? Hmm. So I'm a big science historian. Um, so, so I always love the history behind science. And um, Isaac Newton is one of my favorite scientists, not because of what he's accomplished, but the type of personality that he had in accomplishing all of this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't know much about Isaac Newton, He was a very quirky person, Mm -hmm. very quirky person. Um, uh, And a lot of people would probably argue that, you know, someone like him was was, was probably on the spectrum. Um, But the way he, because he is essentially known as one of the uh, creators or um, uh, discoverers of fluid dynamics. Mm -hmm. Um, And historically, what he was trying to do was just trying to understand how do we get to God? 
Like, mm-hmm. like, where is God? If, mm-hmm. if we had to figure out where he is, how do we find him? Uh, so he undertook a, a, you know, a range of studies just to try to figure out where heaven is and how to get to heaven. Um, oh, wow. and in, in one of his studies, he was trying to figure out, um, I don't remember specifically now, um, but it was something about celestial bodies and how they rotate. So he decided, well, I, I, I can't see how things rotate, but I can watch water. Mm-hmm. So this man just watched water flow for who knows how long, watch it dripping in buckets maybe, I, oh, wow. I have no idea. And he started to come up with these really fascinating concepts on what he thinks the fluid is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so he came up with terms like viscosity. Um, and I, I bought one of his books thinking, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be inundated with all this math. And I'm going to have to you know, get my math textbooks out to try to figure out what he's saying. And there's no math in this man's book. No mm-hmm. math at all. Just diagrams and him writing very elaborate descriptions of what he thinks is going on. I was like, oh, this is interesting how, how do we get to calculus from here um and, and i would, but the way he would define things i was like okay i, I see the math in what you're saying hmm. um but yeah um fluid dynamics yeah it's it's weird mm-hmm. um, it's very weird um one project that i worked on that i that i kind of used to get students really thinking about fluid dynamics um and i apologize to to, to non-chemical engineers who are listening mm-hmm. but I, I will explain um so the other term that we sometimes use for fluid dynamics is transport phenomena. Mm-hmm. Um, so in transport phenomena, there's this um, boundary condition called the, the no-slip boundary condition. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the no-slip boundary condition, we assume that if a boundary or a surface isn't moving, whatever is close to that surface or by that surface also isn't moving, mm-hmm. right? So if we have fluid flowing over this table, for example, we're assuming that the fluid that's right by the table, that mm-hmm. molecular layer, it's not moving, mm-hmm. right? So when I was living in Greece, I had this really awesome mentor um, that was very interested in that. And he said, how many people have ever verified that it's not moving, mm-hmm. that it's actually zero flow? And I was like, hi. <laughs> I actually don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I started, you know, because the, oftentimes we get challenged to try to figure, figure out or disprove things. And I was like, okay, let me get back to you on that. And I was like, yeah, people have just assumed that this, there's, this fluid isn't flowing along the surface. How do we actually measure that? And he was like, well, I don't know. Let's figure it out. Let's, let's try to build something and, and study it. Uh, so we ended up designing this system that essentially looks at molecular layers of fluid mm-hmm. to try to understand how things flow. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a mixed bag of nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, again, sorry, I'm doing one of those big circular okay. um, things. Uh, but I, 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 would, I would argue thermo, thermodynamics um, is probably the eighth wonder of the world. Thermodynamics is super weird, um, mm-hmm. but also super awesome. Um, mm-hmm. And we rely on it way more than we, way more than we admit. Mm-hmm. And we've also openly admitted as a community that, oh, um, there are three laws of thermodynamics. Um, industry has heavily focused on one law. What about the other two laws? What, mm-hmm. what can they teach us about mm-hmm. what's going on? Um, so what we've been learning um, by just, you know, now looking at the other laws is that, oh, um, we need to try to do things a lot better because we're wasting a lot of energy. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, we're kind of somewhat in an energy crisis globally now. So a lot of people are really trying to understand thermodynamics now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how we can better utilize the resources we have um, to sustain ourselves. Interesting. The uh, professor that we talked to right before this, like thermodynamics is like his, ah, like, uh, you know, area that yeah. he, he likes to stay in. 
Um, but you mentioned like one of your classes, you teach people who are like already in industry and they're just trying to move up like the mm-hmm. corporate ladder. So they have a lot of resources. And then you also talked about how like you believe that Newton might have been on the on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. What do you think are the telltale signs for someone who may not have access to a lot of resources or may not have that exposure to engineering that they might potentially be a good candidate or a good fit for any engineering or even particularly chemical engineering? Uh, That's an interesting question. Um, I would say, you know, people know what they like, right? You like what you like. And sometimes you have no idea why you like it. You have no idea why you're drawn to it. But usually when you discover a passion for something, all of a sudden that curiosity kicks in, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So it could be something as simple as, why does this person keep asking me questions all the time? Like, mm-hmm. well, like I, I need to get this person resources so that they can not just better educate themselves, but help me understand what they're trying to figure out, right? So sometimes it's just that, it's just picking up on that innate curiosity that the person has, right? Uh, helping helping them to tap into what they're trying to um, further expose. Um, for example, I was one of those, uh, like like the way like well, the way I got put, pushed into science was I, I was that... Remember, right? First generation removed from the inner city. So I grew up with VCRs, um, and there was there was this incredible classical issue with VCRs. Um, uh, and it's even I think it's in like memes. It's been in a whole bunch of movies. But for some reason, setting the time on a VCR was like the most foreign and alien thing to people. Like people could never mm-hmm. set the time on a VCR for for whatever reason. Like there was just always a blinking light on a VCR. Um, and I remember very vividly being a four-year-old kid being just completely annoyed by this blinking light after a while. I was like, I'm tired of this light blinking when I'm trying to watch my cartoons. Mm -hmm. I need to do something about this light. So, um, I went up to the VCR. I saw that I could open something. So I opened it. There were like a bunch of buttons in front of me. And I said, well, I'm just going to start pressing buttons. Mm -hmm. Um, and eventually I set the time. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody was incredibly impressed by it. I was like, <laughs> like, that's how I figured out that the blinking light on a VCR was a thing. Um, because they were like, there's something up with this kid. This four-year-old kid figured out what no one in this house could figure out. How, <laughs> yeah. what, what's this kid doing? So after that, you know, they're like, okay, let's keep an eye on this kid. Um, and I was always that kid that would always raise my hands and be like, why? Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so my mom, bless her soul, would get me books like Tell Me Wise and um, encyclopedias. I would just start devouring them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how you kind of pick up on people's passion, right? Mm-hmm. If, if, if you have that curiosity, just innately, you'll want to know more, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you're exposed to something that piques your interest, you, you, will be that, you will be that person saying, I want to know more. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, please tell me more. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what more concerns me though, or not concerns me, but what, what more worries me is, um, the reaction to that person going, why, mm-hmm. why, why? Um, because sometimes it can be picked up in the wrong way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes students like that can be, can be viewed as, um, this, like this disruptive, or? you know, they can okay. sometimes be seen as disruptive to the, to the flow of the class, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if it's, a concept that they're just really, really eager to learn about, right? Because um, sometimes that can just completely detract from the lesson plan. And, you know, from the few lessons that I've learned uh, being an educator, getting detracted from your lesson plan can completely derail your entire semester, right? So, so sometimes it's, especially as an educator, the challenge is how do you balance the need to 
keep everyone engaged, but ensuring that that individual is being heard, right? That that individual is being encouraged. Um, so oftentimes, I would, you know, if I realize that, oh, this person has a lot of questions, right? my first thing would be like, let's talk after class mm -hmm. so I can really invest my response in you, right? So I can give you a very thorough, um, well-thought response. And hopefully I can even give you resources so that when you learn about this very awesome thing that you want to learn more about, you can then tell me what you learned so I can mm -hmm. get excited about what you just learned, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, that's, so that's usually the the thing that I look out for. Um, and, and in my experience, that's, that's usually the, one of the key indicators. It's just, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I want to hear more. So it's that, that student that sits up, you know, because that's the topic that they're interested in. And, and I realize it, it, it sometimes wanes as well. You know, sometimes, for example, sometimes they're very interested in learning about transport phenomena. But as soon as thermodynamics comes on, oh, no, nope, yeah. that's, that's not me. Yeah. That's not me, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, 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 it's just um, putting the food in front of them. Mm -hmm. um, seeing what they like, um, and if they like it, feed it to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think curiosity is probably a better determinant for success than like anything. Um, and inspiration probably being the biggest indicator and in like what research I've like studied on, like how important inspiration really is to education and success, period. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely agree with the the curiosity piece. Our conversation with Dr. Ruel McKenzie will return in a moment. But first, I want to thank you for listening to this diverse engineering podcast series about diverse engineering faculty at the University of Akron. My name is Amari Gambrell, and I am able to attend the University of Akron because of the diversity and engineering scholarships that I have received. These scholarships, which are offered through the College of Engineering and Polymer Science, make a huge impact in my academic success by reducing my financial need. This podcast is dedicated to making a difference for the next generation of diverse engineering graduate students. So if you would like to provide a gift to support an engineering graduate student's academic career, please text WIE to 71777 or give online at www.uakron.edu forward slash giving forward slash WIE. So I wanted to transition a little bit more from like the education side to like the research side. So are you currently doing research? Oh, yes, I am. Yes. Yeah. What, you, what problem are you solving and for who? Yeah. Um, I, again, you know, I'll, I'll just make my big circle. Um, <laughs> so I used to describe my research. I, I would I would say I, I, I poke things for a living. Mm -hmm. And then my wife gave me a very weird look. And I and she said, you know, you might not, you, you know, you probably don't want to publicly say that you poke things for a living. I was like, <laughs> hmm, I get what you're saying now. Let me, let me, let me find some other hey, Shout term. out to your wife. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She wife. is. She is awesome. Um, so I said, you know, okay, let me find something else to say. Um, so I, I, I study materials. I study how they behave. Um, so that we can figure out what to do with them. Um, so I'm usually the guy in between the chemist and the application, right? So, so normally the chemist comes to me and says, I made this thing. What do I do with it? Mm -hmm. And I go, okay, like, give it to me. Um, you know, let me throw it in a few machines and then I'll come back and tell you what you can potentially use it for. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I do, uh, you know, Fundamentally, I do materials characterizations. Um, okay. That's what we call it. Um, but um, I'm also a generalist, I've come to learn when it comes to uh, research. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love fundamental research. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's maybe a blessing and a curse, but because I don't come culturally from a research background or scientific background. Um, so I go into every situation just why? 
Why? Why? Tell me more. I want to know more. Um, and, and I always kind of get into trouble because I, I then end up starting a lot of projects, <laughs> a lot of projects. Um, but uh, in terms of what I'm working on now, so I have two research thrusts. Um, so one is called polymer dynamics, where we essentially fundamentally study how materials behave under different conditions. Um, and then the second research thrust is enabling complex structures and multifunctional materials. Um, and that's really towards this aim of um, having materials, getting more bang for your buck out of materials. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my, I guess, research philosophies when it comes to materials is that um, if we're looking at this hand sanitizer bottle, for example, it's just there to hold fluid in it, right? Mm-hmm. But what if that bottle could also be a, a capacitor, right? Can, can you, uh, or use it for charging your battery while it holds mm-hmm. a fluid, right? Why, why isn't that possible? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we're kind of, so we're challenging ourselves to, to ask how can we engineer multiple properties of benefit for industry and society in materials. Uh, so this, uh, material that we're working on, uh, so we're trying to make this molecule called helicines. Um, so it's a helical molecule. Um, I'll talk, uh, beginner, beginning chemistry slightly. So, um, it's, uh, so a helicine is just benzene rings all stuck together in the shape of a spring uh, and i just saw eyes go benzene ring okay um Mm-mm. so it's a it's a chemical structure that um if we design it right we can get electricity go, to go through it okay um so but it's in the shape of a spring and remember so you know i don't have a formal chemistry background but i i was kind of taught in just understanding molecules and mo- molecular behavior um so the day i saw that molecule i said that's an interesting molecule. I think it could potentially be piezoelectric. Mm-hmm. Um, I got this idea when I was a postdoc. Um, I remember I approached a few people about it. I kind of got laughed out of the room. They were like, what are you talking about? Go, go back to work. And piezoelectric, can you explain what that is? Is like movement transferred into energy? What, what yeah, is- yeah. I, I was actually going to dive deeper into okay. that. But thanks for, thanks for asking me to elaborate. So piezoelectric just means... Um, so. Piezo comes from the Greek for uh, force or pressure, mm-hmm. um, and electric comes from the Greek for electric. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so what that means is, if I if I tap on this material, it could pr- produce electricity, or if I zap this material with electricity, it could start moving. moving. But the first time I saw this molecule it was just on happenstance. Um, again, remember, I'm that person who kind of just likes to devour information. So every now and then, I, you know, I just catch myself reading through scientific literature. And I came on this molecule. I was like, that's a very interesting molecule. I think it might be piezoelectric. Um, so I approached my mentor about it uh, because when we're at the Air Force, they have these internal competitions where it's essentially bring your ideas. And if we like it, we'll give you money for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, oh. I, I have lots of ideas and I want to know how good my ideas are. So I'm just going to start dumping ideas on you guys just to see where I am in, in this idea space. Um, and I remember I kind of got laughed out of the room. They're like, what, is, like, what is this guy? Like, what are you talking about? What's the helicine? Get, get, get mm-hmm. back to work. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, fine. But I could not let, I could not let this molecule go. Um, and then like a year later, a paper came out that says this molecule might be piezoelectric. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and I picked it up and I ran back to the room and I was like, look, remember this molecule? Look, these mm-hmm. people say, says, says it might be piezoelectric. Um, so, th- so then my mentor was like, okay, fine. Write, write, write up a proposal and see if it gets funding. Mm-hmm. So I was like, really? Um, but then I recognized, I was like, oh, wait, I'm not a chemist. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know how to make this thing. <laughs> um, I, I looked online to see if I could buy it. I can't buy it. Um, so I have to figure out how to get a team around this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did my best to get a team around it. Um, unfortunately, it didn't get funding. But um, when, I, when I became faculty, I said, I remember that molecule. I, I, wanna, I, I want, I, I, I'm driven to figure out how to get that molecule into a polymer so that we can create these multifunctional materials. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I was lucky enough to recruit a student who was very inspired and motivated by the project. Um, he did, I would say, really well for a student who doesn't have a chemistry background with an advisor who doesn't have a chemistry background mm-hmm. to drive this project um, and build up a lot of collaborations. Um, and what was interesting, um, to make this story come full circle, mm-hmm. was that um, I, I went to Southern Ohio to kind of reconnect with friends, uh, reconnected with my former advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you know we're, we're, we're having a conversation and, you know, he's like, what are you working on? You know, I tell him what I'm working on. And I said, helicines. And he was like, you're working on helicines. He was like, we're working on that too. Oh, wow. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. What, what do you mean you're working on that too? I was like, when I brought this to you guys, you guys didn't want to hear it. Right. What's going on now? Right. And he was like, well, it turns out after you left, someone dusted off your proposal and found a lot of value in it and said we should work on it. So we now have a whole team around this thing oh, wow. and, we're, and we're working on it. And I was like, we better start working together. Yeah. Um, so, so then we formed a collaboration with the Air Force as well um, to develop these materials. Um, so, yeah. So and it's been very rewarding. It's been mm-hmm. a very rewarding experience. Do you have any end users in mind or is it still like very fundamental research? Oh, it's still very fundamental. Uh, we, we learned... Uh, not to knock my chemist colleagues, uh, mm-hmm. but but we quickly learned that chemists are more interested in just showing that they can make something. Engineers are more interested in showing what that thing can do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we started to survey the literature on how to make this, what we recognized was that um, the chemistry field has a lot of issues making this molecule, mm-hmm. um, even though they've been making it for over a hundred years, right? Um, and as an engineer, we come in and you know we want drumfuls of this molecule so that we can move on with our lives and do things with it. Um, and what we learned was that the chemistry community they were making thimble folds off this molecule. And we're like, we can't, we can't do engineering with this. So we've essentially transformed my student's thesis into figuring out why, um, mm-hmm. why can't we make a lot of it? Um, mm-hmm. So we've actually expanded the, the outlook of this community a lot by essentially looking at all their problems and saying, okay, we're going to address all these problems so that we can make a ton of this molecule. Oh, well, yeah. are there any emerging trends that you're excited about? Oh, yeah, um, I'm excited about a lot of things. Um, <laughs> Are you? Oh yeah, I wouldn't have gathered that about you. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so so this this material class that I fell into by accident, and I and I have to publicly thank my colleague Hunter King for getting me into this uh, material class. Um, so another project that we're working on. Um, uh, Sorry, th- this conversation has quickly made me recognize that I'm not. I'm, I'm a very non-traditional scientist. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so there was this problem that I, again, I stumbled upon, um, during my postdoc. Um, and it, it was one of those interesting, annoying problems that you could move on with your life with and no one would care. Um, mm-hmm. but again, me and science problems, I'm like, why does no one care about this problem? This is a very interesting problem. I don't know why it's interesting, but I'm going to come back and tell you why it's interesting. Mm-hmm. So 
I had my hand in a lot of different things when I was a postdoc. Um, one of my projects was on 3D printing. Uh, mm-hmm. So we were trying to develop 3D printing mix heads, uh, essentially figuring out how to mix things while printing. Mm-hmm. And while trying to figure out, okay, what, what am I going to print? How are we going to mix it? Um, I came across this protocol for just 3D printing epoxy, right? So glue, right? Just okay. 3D printing glue. And it was a paper from a colleague of mine, Brett Compton, who's now at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. But this at this point in time, I think he actually just started his faculty position and I was a postdoc. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was essentially just repeating his recipe and, you know, learning 3D printing uh, that way. Um, and every time I put his recipe together, something always crystallized or something was always forming. Mm-hmm. And um, I never had in much experience with epoxies at this point in time. So I was like, um, this is weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would go to my mentor and I say, you know, there's this thing that looks like it's crystallizing or something seems to be forming in this. Um, I don't know what's going on. Um, and my mentor was like, well, is it impacting uh, the reaction? Is it impacting you being able to 3D print it? And I was like, no. He was like, okay, well, keep going. Mm-hmm. I was like, you don't care about this? You don't care about this? You don't look at the pictures. It looks really nice under the pictures. And I was like, no, not really. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, okay, fine. Um, so that's where I had to learn that. Okay, I, you might have a lot of ideas, but some of them you have to kind of table so that you can focus on what you're focusing on. But luckily for me, um, I heard that Brett Compton was going to visit that summer. I was like, okay, well, if this guy that published this paper that I'm following is visiting, then that gives me at least a little window to try to figure out what these weird crystals are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember emailing him saying, you know, I'm trying to, I'm, all I'm doing is repeating your protocol and I keep getting this thing. Did you ever observe it? And he was like, you know, now that you mention it, no, but I also threw a whole bunch of other stuff in, in here. So I wouldn't see it anyway. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's a bummer. I was like, okay, fine. I will leave it alone for now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when he came for the summer, he approached me and he was like, did you, did you follow up on that thing yet? Because we repeated it and now we're getting it too. What is it? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I can't, I can't follow up on it because I was told not to. And I was like, okay, fine. Um, so I, then I became faculty and I was like, oh, remember that thing I had to table? I want to figure out what that is now. Um, so I recruited a student to kind of help me walk down this this path of trying to figure out what a what is this thing that we're forming, understand why it's forming, and seeing if we can apply it to something else. And it took us a, a while, but we figured out what was forming. We figured out why it was forming. And while I was figuring out why it was forming or what was forming, uh, my colleague Hunter um, asked me about um, metal organic frameworks. Um, so he's a uh, a faculty also in our school of polymer science and polymer engineering, but his background is physics, right? So when it comes to chemistry, he's like, he just throws his hands up and he's like, I don't speak chemistry. I don't do chemistry. I'm a physicist. I was like, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was asking me about this material class um, and he was telling me, well, they're inorganic, organic hybrids. And I, and I was like, Ooh, I was like, I only do polymers, right? I, I don't do, I don't, I don't do hard stuff. I, mm-hmm. I only do soft stuff. And he was like, come on, just take a look at it. And I was like, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll look into this thing. So he gave me this paper and I'm reading it. And after I read it, I was like, all this stuff sounds very familiar. I wonder if that's the thing that we're actually making in my lab. Because mm. at this time I had, you know, I, all I'm trying to do is figure out what this thing is and what we can do with it. Um, and it turns out we were making metal organic frameworks or what we call coordination polymers um, in the lab. And I was like, wait. So I ran back to Hunter and I was like, you know, that, that, that thing that you were talking about, that's actually what we're making in the lab. What were you interested in again? Talk to me some more so I can like try to make this thing for you now. So, so then I just got down this rabbit hole of making coordination polymers. But what we make them for is, again, we, we try to get them for multifunctional activities. Mm-hmm. So this coordination polymer that we're making, it's actually also an adhesive. So we can turn it into glue. So just imagine a powder 
Uh, you throw it into some epoxy, you heat it up, and it gets really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because it's a coordination polymer, it also has secondary properties as well, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it could potentially have magnetic, electrical, gas storage oh, wow. properties, all this other stuff. Um, so oh, wow. um, because of that wonderful conversation that I did not close my ears to, um, I, I ended up down this wonderful rabbit hole of making coordination polymers. And they're like my favorite materials now, believe yeah. it or not. So yeah. it seems like, you know, trying to find all these different use cases for polymers is like your thing. Like, how do we yes, make... Yeah, that's my thing. Um, it took me a while to recognize that. Because, um, yeah, I, I, I don't like... I love chemistry, but I don't like it enough to do chemistry in a lab all day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... I like applications, but I don't like to overinvest myself in just thinking about applications. I like being, I like being that bridge. I like being that person that says, I'll do some chemistry, I'll do some applications, but I'm more focusing on trying to understand, well, what can we do with these new things? Um, what are the possibilities? Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of, of new things, um, I want to transition to a question that's probably more about you, you know, personally. Are there any like skills or hobby that, that you picked up over the pandemic? Oh, oh man. Um, probably. Um, I, I have a weird COVID fog brain. Yeah. Um, it, it's hard to tell time. Like I, I keep telling myself, keep having to remind myself we were kind of locked down for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was always into gardening, um, but my love for gardening kicked up 10, 10 notches mm-hmm. during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I started to really invest in learning about, well, how do things grow? How do we nurture certain things? Where can certain things grow? I started to, oh, what else? Well, I was always into puzzles. Um, mm-hmm. I just started to do a lot more puzzles. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I don't think I developed new hobbies per se. I just invested more in the hobbies that I, that I all of a sudden had time for now. Mm-hmm. So I read somewhere that you were into, is it meteorology or? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Where'd you read that? (laughs) Somewhere. Yeah. In puzzles. And I was wondering if you think that they relate, you know, when I was seeing it online, it was like metrology or something. Oh. Which is not meteorology. So so metrology is the science of measuring things. Okay. I'm I'm okay with metrology. I'm not... Uh, you know, it, it's not my thing, right? Okay. I, I, metrology is cool, but meteorology, yeah. I'm a nut for, nut, right? Okay. So, so, so that's just weather, right? Okay. So, uh-huh. so remember I said the, the thing that really resonated with me was just experiencing the seasons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I love meteorology. Um, I, for some reason, I feel like in a formal life, I was probably a weatherman. Yeah. 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 Like, I, I don't know why I just love the weather. Like I, I, I remember the weatherman growing up as a kid and I used to always, you know, no, no, no fault of his. I used to always kind of just mock him. I'm like, it's hot every day, guy. Like yeah. <laughs> it's, it's 80 degrees today. It's going to be 80 degrees tomorrow. It's going to be 80 degrees the day after that. Right. There's mm-hmm. no, there's no second guessing what the weather is going to be in Jamaica. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I moved to America and, and I get deeply fascinated. I'm like, oh no, the weather does vary. Mm-hmm. How does it vary? How do they, how do these people know what it's going to, what the weather's going to be tomorrow? Mm-hmm. What's an almanac? Let me learn more about these almanac things. Wait, <laughs> people can predict the weather years in advance. This is interesting. Mm-hmm. What's the cyclical nature of all this stuff? And I, I, I loved it to the point where I actually started tying it into my research. Um, mm-hmm. I, I started learning about things called, um, microclimates and how microclimates are very impactful to, 
um, the flora and fauna in environments. Uh, What's a microclimate? Uh, microclimate is uh, not to play on words, but it's a climate in a very small area, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we are in a microclimate right now, okay? Right? So it's really just there's global climate, local climate, and then microclimate. Okay. So like a specific location, maybe like in a building, could it, a microclimate couldn't be a city though. Potentially, you okay. can apply it to a city. You can even apply it to that garbage can, right? Okay. There's a microclimate around that garbage can, right? It's really just how does the local environment differ going from coordinate to coordinate, irrespective okay. of what your coordinate system is. Okay. Um, and there is this really interesting book by, I believe he was a retired scientist, but um, it was a gardening book that he wrote all about oh, wow. microclimates. I think it was a gardening book. Um, so he, he was essentially talking about how he recognized that the animals and the um, flora and fauna in, in, in his garden responded to these microclimates. And I was like, oh, that's very interesting. That's so interesting. <laughs> um, but what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and around that time, again, while I was a postdoc, um, or at least... When I was interviewing to be a postdoc at the Air Force, um, I, I happened to let my mentor know that I have this interest in the weather, that I uh, that I see it as this really big non-equilibrium thermodynamic problem, mm-hmm. and and he was like, "Oh, I have the I I think I have the project for you," mm-hmm. and it was this project on um, autonomous materials or autonomous autonomous locomotive materials, right? So materials that just move by themselves, mm-hmm. allegedly, right? That mm-hmm. allegedly move by themselves. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I get to the Air Force on day one, I meet my colleague, the chemist, the great, uh, David Wang, who's also an alumni of the University of Akron and one of the people who said, I need to work here. Okay. Um, so he, so he approached me and he said, okay, you're the new guy. Here's the material. Um, and I said, okay, what does it do? I, I, I hear it does, I hear it does stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh yeah, let me show you. So he wet a piece of paper, he put the plastic on it and this piece of plastic just started flipping around. Oh, wow. I was like, that's a microclimate. I know what that is. I've been reading about that. I know what, I know exactly what that is. I was so excited. I was like, oh, no wonder I got this job. My, me talking about the weather was what got me this job. Mm. So I ended up developing this, this, I don't want to say it's elaborate, a very simple chamber for controlling how these things moved to really understand why they moved and what triggers their motion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really just turned it into a, a, a weather experiment, really. Right. So I was just controlling the climate around this piece of plastic and just watching how it moved. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another big interest area of mine, right? So meteorology, love it to death. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, um, I, I'm at this point with the weather now where if I just look outside for a while, I can I can probably tell you what's what's going to happen later. Oh wow! Yeah, it, it's kind of close. To, <laughs> it's kind of close to obsessive. <laughs> so you've mentioned like a couple of different areas of research and or like I guess interest and in how you've like incorporated in, it into your research or into your experience as a scientist. Do you consider yourself a mad scientist? A mad scientist? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I would say no. No. Yeah. Um. You know, the word mad has negative connotations that kind of gives the sense that I'm this wily spirit that kind of goes around and knocks things over and, you know, mm-hmm. you know, maybe show, shows way too much exuberance or, you know, control over something. No, I, I think I'm just 
a curious person. Mm-hmm. Really, I I really think I'm just a curious person, and I and I've chosen a profession that allows me to pursue my curiosity, mm-hmm. right? It, as far as far as I want to, um, really, like gives me all that rope. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I I don't think I, I don't think I'm a mad scientist. I I think I'm just an average curious person, to mm-hmm. be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I read some things, you know, about you, um, and I'm yeah. just kind of curious, like, what does like community or a society mean to you? Ooh, um, that's a great question. Society is, at least for me, fundamentally, is re- reminding ourselves that there's only one Earth, mm-hmm. right? Um, I- I've said this in many classes now that technologically we're we're at a place where we can actually say the Earth is pl- flat technologically let me just restate that right so meaning um we it's it's very hard for us to be ignorant about what's going on in the world right um, mm-hmm. it's very easy to know what's going on in any single corner of the world now um mm-hmm. culturally philosophically anything right mm-hmm. and when it comes to community um especially being from a historically disenfranchised ethnic group Mm-hmm. Um, it's for us to recognize that, you know, we all have to be individual champions, right? Um, th- th- we can't rely on one person. We can't rely on this one thing. We have to recognize that a change comes from within, um, not from without, mm-hmm. um, and contributing, um, is necessary, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have to contribute in some way. Um, mm-hmm. even if you don't think you're contributing, you're contributing by not contributing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's just recognizing that we all have a part to play, um, however minor, however major, uh, but each role is significant. Um, everyone has a voice. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what I try to live by, but Mm -hmm. you know. And so you feel like, you know, there's a a duty to contribute to community, I guess, in what way specifically do you give back? So I tend to give what I call random time, um, meaning I, I, I always, I'm open to a discussion. Um, it was, so like if, if, if I'm walking across campus and you catch me, we, we will probably talk about something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm not the best at deliberately carving time, meaning mm-hmm. going somewhere to, to physically contribute. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm always an advocate for, mm-hmm. um, so I, I've, found myself in a variety of situations where I end up becoming an advocate for, for whatever I find myself in, in find myself involved in. Mm-hmm. So for example, I've fallen into becoming an advocate for neurodiversity mm-hmm. specifically because of my experiences in education, supporting people, um, mm-hmm on the spectrum or with neurodiverse skill sets. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was just coming from, uh, Oh, geez. Weird life I have. Um, so I was transitioning from working at the Air Force to being a faculty member here at the university. Um, and I, I remember telling my mentor, I need to figure out how to, I need to learn how to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, this job doesn't teach me how to teach. So I need to go figure this out. Mm-hmm. So I lived in a small town called Yellow Springs, Ohio. Um, and I said, well, let me just try to find something in town that that gives me an opportunity to, to teach, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, irrespective of the age, age group. And there was this place I kept seeing job posts and it was this place. And for some reason, jobs posted here weren't disappearing as jobs posted everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I recognized that, oh, this place is just down the street. Mm-hmm. I can walk here if need be. Mm-hmm. 
But then I recognized, I looked at this place again. I was like, why have I never heard about this place? I've been living in this town for like two years now and it's down the street and I've never heard of it. Right. And it turns out that it was a school for, so the non-politically correct term um, that, that, I, that I think people are transitioning from was that it's a remedial school. Is mm-hmm. that what they used to call? I, mm-hmm. I don't remember what they, mm-hmm. what they used to call it, but it's a remedial school um, or a school for at-risk youth. But I just kind of signed on to work part-time to be a teacher's aide. Mm-hmm. Um, not really telling people what my background is. I'm just here to help. Right. Um, and, I, uh, and I was an aide in a, in a history class. And I learned a lot about American history and the political system in this class, actually. Um, but what I recognize was that there are a lot of skill sets out there, um, a lot of skill sets, a lot of talented people out there who don't get um, a fair shot at the academic system because mm-hmm. they don't fit into what we call the traditional educational model. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're often viewed as... Well, actually, I, I have no idea how they're often viewed, um, but the way they were treated was that their ambitions or their goals um, should be minimized, right? Um, like, no, people like you can't be doctors. People like you can't be engineers. People like you can't grow up to be the president, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're all the dregs of society, right? That That's kind of how some of them were treated. Right. Um, and that disturbed me way more than I thought it would. Right. So, Cause you know, I'm just here to assist. Right. So I'm you know, not talking, not saying anything. I'm just here to do what you tell me. Um, but after a while I started to develop a rapport with these students. Um, people started to ask me about my background. Um, in fact, um, what was funny was that the history teacher that I worked with, I apologize. I don't remember his name. He was like, you know, you might actually be good at teaching. Um, <laughs> what, what, what do you want to do? What do you want to do when you grow up? <laughs> That's exactly what he said. What do you want to do when you grow up? Mm-hmm. And I was like, um, actually, I'm about to become a faculty member at the University of Akron. Um, and after that, he, he was like, oh, this is what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so they started to give me more active roles instead of just kind of sitting in the back and making sure that people show up to class. Right. Um, so I, I started to develop such a good rapport with the students that they actually assigned me a student who was having a very hard time adjusting to everybody else. Um, he was kind of known as the problem kid. Mm-hmm. And they were like, you know what, if you can just get this kid to just sit down and have a conversation and write his name on a piece of paper, we'll be very happy. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that's kind of sad, right? right. Uh, but it turns out that um, the student had a, a range of emotional and neurological um, difficulties, you know, stemming from, you know, just his upbringing and, uh, and his childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but this kid was bright as a whip, like mm-hmm. bright as a whip, um, very much into wrestling. Um, and then there was another student who was on the spectrum. He, he was the one who actually started to, to educate me about the spectrum and what being the, on the spectrum uh, meant. The autistic or yes. autism spectrum. Yeah. Um, and also bright as a whip. And in, in fact, every day students would come in and say, hey, stop hacking into our stuff, right? Just stop, uh-huh. stop, please, <laughs> just stop. Um, love pulling apart computers. Um, and after a while when everyone, you know, when the cat was out the bag, that's, oh, this guy's an actual, actually an educator and he's going to be at a university. You know, I, I, I was able to now have these conversations with the students about, okay, what are your, what are your life goals? What are you mm-hmm. planning on doing? Um, and I, I started to get disheartened because a lot of them are like, look where, look where we are, Mr. McKenzie. Like mm. if we're here, this means this is it for us. Right. I'll, you know, I'll be lucky if I can get a job as a mechanic. I'll be lucky if I can get a job working at Kroger's, you know, bagging groceries. And I'm like, you, you guys are talented. Like, where are we failing you as a system? Um, 
and I was kind of motivated to try to figure out how to get people to recognize that there there is a talent pool out there that we're not even batting an eyelash at because mm-hmm. we just don't think that again don't want to put words in people's mouth but the feeling I got was that we were treating them as if they weren't even worthy of consideration right for specific opportunities um so you know before I before I left I you know I told them I was like you know I have no idea how this professor thing is going to go. I have mm-hmm. no idea what's waiting for me on that side. But the one thing I do know is I'm going to make a commitment to at least trying to broaden or open this gate for you guys. So, mm-hmm. that, so that when you come to places like this, you feel welcomed. You feel as if you belong here. You feel as if this is what you're meant to do. Mm-hmm. Or at least you're, you have an opportunity to openly question if this is what you want to do, right? right. Um, that way, where, where you can do that. And I, I have tried that to some degree. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by like you've tried? Um, yeah, so year one, when I, when, when I started, again, not knowing anything about how this landscape works, I, I come with all my ideas and I'm like, okay, I want to do all this stuff. I'm very excited. I'm very, very excited. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I saw on, on, on the digest. So the digest is, um, essentially, um, a, a newsletter that we get every day about what's going on on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw, uh, some news bits about, um, how to support students on the spectrum. So it was a presentation being given by Al Davis from the education college. And I was like, there's my guy. Mm-hmm. There's my guy. Where's, where was that idea? Let me, let me, let me get it and dust it <laughs> off and, and, and see, and, and see how I can formulate this thing now. I had no idea what I was doing, but I emailed him. I was like, you know, I, I can't make your talk, but I would, I would love to get together to talk about these ideas that I have about this program that I hope to start to kind of support students on the spectrum because I recognize, you know, I kind of gave him my backstory and I was like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to you. I'll, I'll hear, you know, I'll hear what you have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did. Um, but then I said, okay, how do I start a program on mm-hmm. campus being mm-hmm. a first year? Mm-hmm. I have no idea what resources I have access to. I have no idea what the support structures are like to get anything done. Mm-hmm. Um, but it quickly developed almost a life of its own because, you know, the more I spoke with people, the more they're like, oh, there's this guy on campus who's trying to start this program. Let's help him out. Um, so I started to connect with a lot of potential stakeholders on campus. So I connected with the Office of Accessibility. I connected with the Office for Student Retention and Success. Okay. I collaborate. I connected with um, uh, colleagues in the business college. I connected with colleagues in the um, education college. All to try to figure out how to get this program up and running. How to try to um, get some meaningful metrics on a how are we supporting students who are on the spectrum right and what are we doing to ensure that they actually graduate mm-hmm. um respectively right mm-hmm. um and i i what i quickly re- realized um you know and i'm kind of just kind of singling out um high performing students on the spectrum mm-hmm. um was that you know a lot of them socially felt isolated um mm-hmm. in year one they hit what i call this proverbial wall that essentially once they hit it, if they're not getting the necessary support, um, it's really hard to retain these students. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even though I, I, I didn't get to run this pro- program at full strength or, uh, or as I'd like, you know, I'm very proud that the students that we did work with, um, when they hit the wall, we were there to support them. We were there to catch them. We were there to essentially build this community around them mm-hmm. to ensure that, you know, that they felt welcomed here, right? That they mm-hmm. felt like they're a part of campus and, and they're, they're thriving now, actually. Um, in fact, engineering is usually where you, you see a lot of neurodiversity, right? Because not everyone is what we call book smart, right? Mm-hmm. Not everyone can 
regurgitate every single chapter from a book, but put them in front of a machine and they'll, they'll show you what right, they can do, right? right. Um, ask them to build something, they'll show you what they can do, right? Um, and I, I, I don't think we have, at least overall, we don't have the tools to support those, what we call divergent learners, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if we can catch those people, we, we will be for the better. That's, I would like to see engineering curriculum evolve in that way because there's so many people that I've met who are like through and through engineers. Like I don't consider myself an engineer. I'm good at puzzles and math and I can mm-hmm. figure that out. But you ask me to pull something apart and put together. I don't care, you know, mm-hmm. about that. But there are people who like live and breathe that and they, you know, sought out to do engineering. But the math, oh yeah, you know, the math was the, the wall for them and they couldn't do it. So they couldn't professionally, yeah. you know, be an engineer. And I'm just like that. I'm so uh, sorry. Yeah, te- you know? test test taking. I've learned since I've become an educator, and 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 just through a, a few close friends, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning, a lot of people just can't test well, mm-hmm. right? Irres- irrespective of their intelligence level, give them a test, and all of a sudden, all the eyes become used, and the the cues become threes, and they're like, yeah. I do- I have no idea what I'm doing anymore. Yeah. Um, remove them from the test and all of a sudden they remember everything, right? Um, and that's, you know, like, like yes, we need some formative assessment, but we also have to recognize, you know, some people just can't test well, right? right? What, do we, what do we do about those? Mm-hmm. And, and that's where I say that's that's where the administrators get paid their big bucks, right? Because they, they have to figure <laughs> that out. Um, so it, do you have like any like desired reputation or like desired impact when all is said and done? You know, so oh, like, yeah. That's a big question. Oh, yeah. That's... I. Don't we all, right? <laughs> uh, at least I, 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 I don't would, think I, so. I, I would, I would hope that we all, you know, want to have some impact on something, right? I, I think, I think we all do. It's just a matter of the scale of the impact, right? Um, hopefully, hopefully, this isn't a fate that I've set for myself. But I, I always told myself that I, I'll be the happiest person on the planet if I, if I write a paper that kind of gets scoffed at. Right. So, so people don't pay attention to, and then like 50 years later when I'm, I'm like really old and they're like, there's this paper from 50 years ago that's going (laughs) to completely revolutionize everything. And we should do what this, what, what, what's in this paper. Right. To to me, to me, that, that, that would be my crowning achievement as a scientist. Like, oh yeah, remember that thing that I did 50 years ago? Yeah. That, that's, that's something now. Right. That's something weird to be, to, to to have as a goal. I think. I think it's fair. I think it's kind of cool, actually. Um, are there any questions that you feel like I didn't ask? Or anything that you'd like to say that you didn't get the opportunity to? So the thing I, I, I want to say, right, so this is a diverse engineering podcast. Um, the, the thing I would say is uh, I, I really appreciate all the efforts, at least all the public efforts that I'm seeing um, now on recognizing the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but... I, I think what the, the issue that we're running into a lot now is how do we formulate diversity, equity, and inclusion? Like what does that really translate into in, in terms of either policy or instructions or rules? Um, and I, I just like that I'm seeing it, right? It's, it's nice to, again, being from an ethnically, uh, historically disenfranchised ethnic group, it's, it's nice to hear people say, we we are recognizing the the impact of historical trauma, mm-hmm. um, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but I think what 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 I would love to see more of is this recognition of either of 
how much we know about the history, right? Mm-hmm. So how much how much we actually do understand and can empathize with people who are who are either currently or have experienced um, certain levels of trauma is such a strong word, um, but, but I trauma, think is fair um, that that has limited their participation in endeavors that they're aspiring to participate yeah. in, right? Yeah. Um, so the the thing that scared me a lot um, when I became a faculty member was how few minority faculty members there are. Mm-hmm. And when I would try to inquire on the why of there being such <laughs> few, that fi- the, that's me, <laughs> that, that, that is me. Um, the why of there being such few of us, what I, what I learned is that it's not that there aren't minorities who want to be faculty members or who aspire to, 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 to these positions. It's just the culture that they find themselves in isn't accepting of who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and I apologize if it's sounding stronger um, than, than, than my intentions, but. Oh, you, you don't know, need to but, apologize. But, 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 I think it's probably stronger than you. You're, you're maybe, 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 I'm, maybe I'm trying to dial it down a little so, so I don't come across as controversial. But, you know, I, I've, again, maybe it's just my innate curiosity, but I, I, I've, I, I've made it a purpose to, to, to speak with prominent scientists to try to figure out what's going on, what's going on in, in our community. Why, 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 why is it so difficult for minority faculty members to feel like they belong here. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going on? And you know, it's 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 really hard to put your finger on. on it. Like, like it's 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 really difficult. Um, and I kind of call it the, uh, the 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 death by a thousand paper cuts issue. So, for example, right? Um, you know, most minorities uh, ex- experience some form of uh, certain levels of treatment, um, exclusionary treatment everywhere they go mm-hmm. right so so for example if you are that one person who does something that doesn't make me feel included you're like okay yeah you know that's just the one thing that i did right How how's that going to throw your day off mm-hmm. but what they don't recognize is that you know if i interact with 20 people in a day maybe half those people treat me in an exclusionary way mm-hmm. right treat you as if you don't belong right so mm-hmm. like yeah like while you can deal with that single instance of, okay, sure. You're just, you know, you're just being mean. You just feel like being a jerk. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time the fifth person comes around, you're like, wow, like, do I, do I not feel welcomed? Like, mm-hmm. am I really not welcomed here? Do, mm-hmm. Does everyone really not like me? Like what, like mm-hmm. what is going on? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and sometimes it makes you question things, right? It makes you question, well, is it me? Is it, mm-hmm. is it my personality? Um, and, and, you know, when you're in a job that expects you to perform at a certain level, like having those thoughts, isn't productive, right? Isn't right. isn't productive to to your success or to your work ethic, um, and I think that's what a lot of people don't recognize, right? It's like you know, like, like yeah, you might be that one person who do that one thing, but the person who's experiencing it is experiencing it from a spectrum of people, right? right? Um, and that can really impact their day to day, right? So so it's just recognizing that um, what 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 a lot of minorities face. It's not. It's not that individual thing, right? It's 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 more of this. Um, uh, I, I always hate to use the word systemic, mm-hmm. right? It, it's it's it, it almost comes across as systemic sometimes because you're like, what? Like, what's going on here? All, all, you know, all, all, all I want is a sandwich. Like, why? Like, why do I have to deal with this right now? Right. 
Um, and then sometimes we come across as, you know, I've heard this term, well, not directed at me, but, you know, the, the angry black man or the, mm-hmm. the, the angry person. Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes it's just like, you know, you, you just don't feel like you're being heard, right? Yeah. Because, you know, you, you try to explain it to someone and they're like, well, I hear you. I, I will try my best to limit my behaviors. And I'm like, no, it's not just about you. Yeah. Like, it's not just about you. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, 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 a, it's, about, it's about this broader experience. Right? Mm-hmm. And if we can do our best to address that, I think we'll all be for the better. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, in, in thinking about like economics and I may shuffle some words around, but like economics is really about the study of how people, I guess, um, maximize scarcity or how people's behaviors change mm-hmm. due to scarcity. Mm-hmm. But like, what about scarcity's impact or even these like um, uh, transgressions mm-hmm. uh, culturally, like that impact on people's ability to even think or to make rational decisions, yeah. um, you know? And so like going back to the point, like your like intellectual capacity or like what you have the opportunity to really focus on is already limited in itself just because you have all those other thoughts or experiences oh, like yeah. storming around like in your, in your brain. Yeah. Like in the, in the, in the words of one of my favorite rappers, um, you know, um, we took old food and made soul food. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, you know, there's a sorry, I'm going to I'm going I'm to jump into some history for a bit just so, mm-hmm. just to kind of give context to this. So um, historically, um, black people were chosen to be slaves because it was known that we were able to endure the, 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 the harsh climates that we were going to be exposed to. Um, so like in the Western world, a lot of the indigenous people that were being enslaved just started dying out. Mm-hmm. So that's how Africans came across the, the, the ocean. Um, but I think what, we, what we've developed as this historically disenfranchised ethnic group is this resiliency. Like we, we've figured out how to be resilient and successful irrespective of whatever situation is being placed before us or, mm-hmm. or what we're being placed into. To the point where, you know, what we should recognize is that our culture right now is the source of pop culture, right? If you've ever watched Blackish, there's a really there's a really funny joke about that in Blackish. Um, but what what I think we're missing though is 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 just that dialogue, is just that necessary dialogue on how this has impacted us, like why why we have to be so resilient, why we feel like there's this otherworldliness in this single country, right? Because I, I've I've had lots of conversations with um my white colleagues and a lot of times I'm like, you know, you know, black people are from America too, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, they're not just, you know, they're not this alien, <laughs> alien thing, right? Um, you know, you know, like I'm, I'm surprised you don't know more about, about black culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, to me, that's been one of the bigger surprises is just that there is, it's, it's like this weird wall, mm-hmm. like this incredibly weird wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been working really hard to just peek over it and say, Hey neighbor, um, <laughs> let's have a conversation. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me about yourself, um, because traveling. Um, I, I, I didn't get to talk about this, but I, you know, one selfish reason I got into the sciences, um, especially doing a PhD, was for traveling. Mm-hmm. Big wanderlust. I, I love traveling, um, primarily to learn about other cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the biggest eye opening experience I had was when I moved to Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is going to sound hopefully not, not, not derogatory against anyone from Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I learned that Europeans have a very laid back lifestyle. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. meaning like uh, you know they 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 don't um not not all Europeans I should say that's right, right. but um when it comes to to, to to personal hygiene, right? They, they they don't go over and beyond what they need to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes you might meet a guy who hasn't showered in a few days. That's mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. Um, haven't brushed your teeth in a, in a, in a while. That's fine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And what impressed me about that, um, especially when we kind of think about this weird, um, I, I call it two world, uh, two world issue that most black people have to deal with, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of like, like we live in two like worlds. a double consciousness. Yeah, like this double consciousness. Was that you know? A lot of times they were kind of telling, you know, kind of dictating like how you should behave and act so that the other side that doesn't look at you a certain way mm-hmm. or treat you a certain way. And then when I moved to Europe, I was like, wait, these people do whatever they want and, and they're living really relaxed lives. I'm not, mm-hmm. not going to have people tell me how I should mm-hmm. do anymore. Like, mm-hmm. No more. No more. Like these, these people have made me feel like being regular is the way to be and being mm-hmm. me. So yeah. I'll, I'll do whatever I want now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, being, being able to learn, not vicariously, but by, by immersing yourself in other cultures um, really helps to give perspective mm-hmm. because you get that opportunity to actually physically walk in those shoes, right? right. So, you know, a lot of my colleagues, uh, maybe fortuitously, you know, have been like missionaries, right? They were like, oh yeah, I've, I've traveled to all these corners of the world. So I, so I understand you. I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I know where you're coming from. I, I, I can empathize with that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really hard to develop true empathy, I would say, like if, if you haven't given yourself that opportunity to just walk in that person's shoes. Uh, because, you know, you're, you're always going to have some level of ignorance, right? Because, you know, sometimes you're like, well, why, why is he late for school all the time? Why, why, why is he showing up with raggedy clothes and, you know, doesn't have the necessary books for schools? Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I have this all the time. Why can't he, right? You know, sometimes yeah. questions like that emerge and you're like, are you kidding me? Come on. Like, you know, you, know, you have to understand my life and where I'm coming from as a person. Well, thank you so much um, for yeah. your time today and sharing your story and, you know, perspectives. And, you know, I'm sure somebody out there listening, probably his life will be changed. Yeah. You know, by yeah. hearing your words. Oh, thank you. I really appreciated the time and the opportunity to speak. This was uh, awesome. And I wish you all the best. Thank you. Yeah. Make sure to visit us at uakron.edu forward slash diverse engineering to follow or to share our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for season three of Diverse Engineering. Keep rising. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Diverse Engineering. I want to thank GPD Group and Continental Contatech for their generous support of this podcast series. If you'd like to help ease the financial burden of our diverse graduate students in the College of Engineering and Polymer Science, please consider a donation. We need your help as community sponsors and listeners to support these students in any way you can. To donate, text WIE to 71777 or give online at uacron.edu slash giving slash WIE. Thank you to podcast host Ebony Bond, podcast editor Daniel Groen, WZIP general manager Chris Kepler, podcast creator Heidi Cressman, and the College of Engineering and Polymer Science for making this podcast a reality. This has been Gary Miller, president of the University of Akron. Go Zips! <laughs>